Bleedership. Bleedership. Now, when I talk about leadership and I say, uh, you know, a leader, who is a leader? Sometimes the, one of the first things we think about is uh, a capital L leader. So someone who is in some official leadership capacity, maybe like a boss or a coach or the prime minister or the president, whoever it happens to be. And that, and that makes sense. I looked up uh, the definition of a leader in the dictionary, and the first thing it said was a person or a thing that leads. I was like, thanks. Yeah, I knew that. Uh, but the second definition provided a bit more clarity. A guiding or directing head uh, as a leader, as a, an army or a movement or a political group. And I thought that was good. But at the same time, as we think through leadership, what I'm really focusing on today is those roles of unofficial leadership. Unofficial leadership. So these are moments and situations where you might be called upon to provide leadership. You don't have a badge. You don't have an official title or anything like that. And you know these situations, right? Maybe it's a group of people and leadership is required in a certain moment, in a certain situation. Maybe it's uh, with peers, friends. Maybe it's some situation in your household or family or work, church, whatever it happens to be. But these are moments where all of a sudden you can just tell, right? Something is going on where leadership is required. It's like this invisible window or door has opened up. Someone needs to step through and provide a word about, you know, some wisdom or guidance or help the group make a decision or intervene in a situation to stop something, whatever it happens to be. These are moments of unofficial leadership. Now, Daniel Goleman wrote about leadership uh, in his book called Emotional Intelligence back in the 90s. It was a very famous book. And he talked about six different leadership styles. Okay, so here they are. Here's the first one. A coercive leader demands compliance. Do what I tell you. That's one kind of leadership he identified. Second, an authoritative leader. This person mobilizes people toward a vision, like, come with me, right? Third, the affiliative leader creates harmony and builds emotional bonds. And so people come first, and so this is uh, usually kind of a well-liked leader. Number four, uh, a democratic leader uh, forges consensus through participation, really interacting with the people. What do you think? Five, pace-setting leaders. So this leader sets a high standards for performance. Do as I do now, right? And even as I'm saying this, you can probably identify different people or people in your own life, maybe yourself, on this list. Number six, the coaching leader. They develop people for the future. Hey, try this, trying to help them make good patterns of decision-making for their own future. And so as we think through this, of course, where I'm getting at is, what kind of a leader was Jesus? What kind of a leader was he? Now, maybe he's one or two on this list, or maybe he's a combination of them. But here's why it's important. It's important because as Christians, first, he is our leader. And so we need to know the nature of our leader, right, if we are to follow him. Second, here's the thing. We are to emulate him when we are in situations which require leadership. And so I'm thinking here now about those moments of unofficial leadership that you were invited to participate in. If we need to provide some sort of leadership, even though we don't have the title or the badge, who is Jesus like as a leader? And therefore, we might want to learn from him as a leader. Now, maybe it's a strange place to look for insights about leadership, but that's one of the things that we find in today's text from John 19, verses 1 to 16a. It's a story about Jesus, last part of his trial before Pontius Pilate. He is there, and he starts to experience mocking and his torture uh, in this dark trial. And so when we think about that, what does that mean? Well, of course, it's, it's primarily about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. But actually, 
One of the most significant and powerful things about this text is that there are things going on between the lines and behind the scenes which actually teach us about leadership, the kind of leadership Jesus is providing. And this is rarely discussed when we look about you know, the crucifixion and torture sequence of Jesus. So we're going to go through the text. We're going to undercover a few of those things to understand, okay, what kind of a leader is Jesus being? And the text is written, I think, in such a specific way to highlight these traits of leadership. But since we are 2,000 years after the fact, we, we, we're not in that culture. And so sometimes these can get lost unless we do some digging. And then we're going to think, okay, how do we emulate that kind of leadership in those moments when we are invited uh, to do so? And so I invite us to open our Bibles to John 16, sorry, John 19, and uh, beginning at verse 1. And this is a part of our line-by-line walk through the Gospel of John. This is great. A couple weeks after Easter, we will have gone through the entirety of the Gospel of John line-by-line. So I think that's a great uh, accomplishment. And the context, of course, is the trial of Jesus. He's already had some interactions, and uh, he's before Pilate. So Pilate uh, reports to the Roman emperor, Caesar, who's in Rome. He usually is not in Jerusalem. He usually has his uh, headquarters in Caesarea. But because of the Passover festival, there's a potential for maybe some disruption or revolution. And so there's uh, lots of people. The streets of Jerusalem are swelled with pilgrims and travelers. And so he's there to keep the peace. And you think, okay, well, why does Pilate care about Jesus? Why is he on trial in the first place? Well, part of what's going on is that people have been saying that Jesus is a king. That's the issue. Or a Messiah. The Messiah is the anointed one, God's chosen king and representative on the earth. And so Pilate really doesn't care about their little religious squabbles. What he is concerned about is the fact that if people are calling Jesus a king, and if he identifies as a king, it's a political problem because, oh, maybe he is actually some sort of rival to the emperor in Rome. And you can't have that. Right Now, back in chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus has said, and we talked about this, my kingdom is not of this world, right? And so it's an otherworldly kingdom, but that nuance gets lost on a lot of people. So here we have chapter 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. This is a horrific thing. Now, there's different stages of flogging, and um, it, it, based on the story and, and the words that is used here versus Matthew and Mark, it's hard to know if this is the earlier, kind of lighter version of flogging or the more severe version of flogging. Either way, it's horrific. Uh, what it was, the Romans were expert torture, torturers. And so the person who is to be flogged, in this case Jesus, is stripped naked. Uh, they're tied to a beam, a post. And the Roman soldiers encircle them and start to whip um, the victim, okay? And it's not just as if that isn't bad enough, but at the ends of the, the leather straps are pieces, uh, they've tied pieces of bone and metal. And so this is specifically designed to, to cut into, to cut and to rip flesh off of people. And so it's a horrific form of torture, and many people bled so much that they died before the end of uh, the flogging. And so some of you will have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Uh, Mel Gibson, remember that when that came out several years ago? I remember I saw it on the big screen of the movie, and I kind of regret doing it. it. It was so violent. There was so much blood uh, in that, and it shows this bloodlust. And, you know, so I'm not recommending it, but I, I saw it. it was, but scholars, historical scholars will say that, you know, that is very close historically to the practice of flogging. Verse 2, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. So what's going on? Crown of thorns. Crown of thorns, they're making this crown. So, oh, you th- they're mocking him. 
You think you're a king? They're making fun of him. They're mocking him. And as they put this crown on his head, the thorns are going into his flesh. So imagine blood coming down his face. And arrayed him, dressed him in a purple robe. Now purple was the color of royalty. They come up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And struck him with their hands. Again, we're supposed to see a contrast because the common greeting for Caesar, the Roman emperor, was, Hail, Caesar. <laughs> you know, king. Hail, king of the Jews. And the word that is used here in the text is repeated striking. So Jesus is getting struck over and over again. Pilate went out and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns in the purple robe, and the robe, because of the flogging, is probably disguising or hiding some of the blood that has been pouring from his body. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now, kind of a strange thing to say. Notice also that all of this has happened to Jesus, and he hasn't been yet found guilty. And so my sense here is that Pilate is trying to appease the crowd. Hey, look, at I've punished him. Isn't that enough? When the chief priests and the officers saw it, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now, this is where the theme of crucifixion comes in. Of course, we know about it, and I'll get in more of those details on Good Friday. Very difficult, but this was the, the most horrific form of torture and execution that the Romans would use. Could not be used on Roman citizens. Uh, it was only reserved for the worst of criminals. Uh, Romans did not use the word crucifixion in polite society. So horrific was crucifixion. Verse 7, the Jews answered him. He do again say that as we go through the text, this refers specifically not to all Jews. We can't use this for anti-Semitism. This is specifically uh, the religious leadership who has consistently been opposing Jesus. Answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. No, but law, now it doesn't specifically say. It might be Leviticus 24.16. The anti-blasphemy law. So it could be that. But, but here's the thing. Jesus actually is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He has never taken the name of the Lord in vain at all. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, right? And so he has never done anything to dishonor the name of God. He has done everything to honor the name of God. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So a couple of things. Jesus here says that the authority uh, that Pilate has, the political authority has been given him from above. That's interesting. That's kind of a concept we've reflected on through the pandemic, haven't we? Uh, Romans 13. But then he says, whoever delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So who's he talking about? Well, it could be Judas, could be Ennis, could be Caiaphas, could be the uh, Jewish Sanhedrin, the high council. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. 
So <clears throat> Caesar's friend was actually an official title that started to be used around this time for a political supporter of Caesar. So if you got the title Caesar's friend, that was a real feather in your cap. <clears throat> and also we need to know that Pilate doesn't have the best track record with his boss back in Rome. So the fact that he maybe will let go someone claiming to be a king or that other people are following and claiming to be a king, if that word gets back to his boss, that's not a message that, that Pilate wants to get back. So we have to hear, feel that the public intensity and pressure rising on Pilate to act. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, which is like the judge's bench, so where he's going to officially pronounce, in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover, Friday. It was about the sixth hour. Said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Now, <clears throat> this is kind of a last-ditch effort, I think, to appeal to them to maybe um, take it easy on, on Jesus. Uh, but regardless, they, they therefore demonstrate their own disloyalty. We have no king but Caesar. Think of that for a second. Uh, God's people have a king. He's called God. He's called God in Psalm 145 and other places as well. And so they actually do only have one king. So in this statement, they demonstrate their own disloyalty to God, trying to incriminate Jesus of his disloyalty to God, but he's the only one doing so. So again, we see all that irony taking place. Verse 16, so he... Pilate delivered him, Jesus, over to them to be crucified. And we will look at the rest of the story in depth on Good Friday. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're asking, what kind of a leader is Jesus? And I highlighted that there is neglected background um, material about what is actually going on in the text. And so <clears throat> I'm going to highlight some of that for you because I really think it helps us understand the kind of leader that Jesus is here demonstrating himself uh, to be. So in our youth group, uh, youth groups here at the church, one of the things that we are uh, started to do now is the first part of the evening, um, there's a message and there's games and snacks, and then the second part, the older youth come with me, and we've been starting been doing these Bible studies on different biblical passages, and last week we looked at this text as an example, because one of the things, if you want to interpret a passage faithfully in a way that is sound, is you need to take seriously the context and so we talked about that. We unpacked that a bit, not just the surrounding passages in the story, but also some things that might have been going on in, in the culture in the first century. But because we're living 2,000 plus years later, we weren't there, so we don't know some of those customs and some of that background. But when we kind of uncover it, all of a sudden, new things start to emerge about what the text may have meant. And so here, here it is. So some scholars like Thomas Schmidt and N.T. Wright say there are striking similarities between the coronation of a new Roman ruler, the emperor, and the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay? Striking similarities. So when a new Roman emperor comes to the throne, there's this coronation, this procession. Certain things happen, and there are striking parallels between that historically, what went on in the first century, and what here happens to Jesus in his trial, torture, procession, and crucifixion. Okay? So we're going to highlight some of them. We're going to go through a list one by one. So first, the new, on the left column is the new ruler, savior for Rome. And the reason I call him a savior isn't because he is one, but because in the first century, some people called the Roman emperor savior. And so it's a specific contrast to, on the right, the new ruler, savior for the world, who is Jesus. He's given that title back in chapter 4. 
So on the left, the new ruler was given an olive leaf wreath for his head. Column on the right, Jesus was given a crown of thorns for his head, verse 2. Back to the left column, the new ruler for Rome was given a purple robe to wear. Column on the right, Jesus was given a purple robe to wear, verse 2. The new ruler for Rome was led in a procession through the streets. Well, verse 17, as we'll find out on Good Friday, Jesus was led in a procession through the streets. The new ruler for Rome, people would hail the new ruler as victorious. Well, Jesus was hailed in verse 3 as king of the Jews. Mockingly, but we're seeing things happening. The new ruler for Rome was accompanied by an animal which would be killed as a sacrifice. Jesus himself became the sacrifice. So this is a fulfillment way back of what we learned at the start in chapter 1, verse 29. Right? What happened, John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus himself becomes the sacrifice and the coronation. On the left, the new ruler for Rome was led to a high hill called Capitolini Hill. Well, Jesus was led to Golgotha, meaning skull hill or head hill, verse 17. The new ruler for the Roman world had his second and third in command on his right and left. So picture visually what people were looking at, left and right. Well, Jesus was crucified with one person on his left and one person on his right. Verse 18. Then the new ruler was offered wine mixed with myrrh. Well, Jesus was offered wine vinegar. Verse 29. They're both giving wine mixtures. Next. Then finally, the new ruler, after all this, takes his place on the throne and Jesus takes his place on the cross, verse 18. Okay, so having looked at all that, here is our question. How do these similarities, which I do not think are coincidence, how do these similarities between Caesar's coronation as ruler of the Roman world, or as savior of the Roman world, quote-unquote, and Jesus' crucifixion as actual savior of the whole world influence our interpretation about the meaning of what happened? So, <clears throat> this is one of the, th the questions we wrestle with. Now, when you look at the whole story, the trial, the crucifixion, the torture, the everything, of course, the main meaning, and we can't lose track of this, the main meaning is that Jesus dies in our place. Right? He dies, he pays the price for our sins. We deserve to be up there, but he is in our place. And we get peace and freedom with God. That he is one for us, not because we have been great, but because he is. So that's the main meaning. But I think, very intentionally, the story unfolds in such a way with a contrast that is very specific and is meant to teach us what real leadership is like. It's an intentional contrast meant to teach us what real leadership is like, and that is self-sacrificial love. And we cannot miss that. Real leadership is self-sacrificial love. So remember back uh, with Daniel Goleman and the six leadership styles? Well, Rome, the emperor's coercive. I'm in charge. I'm doing this. You better do what I tell you. It's power. Well, specifically, we are being given very intentionally in a way that I think those first readers, those first listeners, the people who are watching it all unfold would have been thinking, wait a second, things are happening that make, remind me of something else. The coronation of Caesar. Oh, wait a second. Okay, therefore, what's happening with Jesus, this is what real leadership is like. And so what happened to Jesus is a subversive narrative. It's a subversive narrative between the lines meant to teach us something. A Bible scholar N.T. Wright says that because of stories like this and because of these intentional contrasts, we as the church can go out into the world doing our work confident that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And so with that, 
it should influence the kind of leadership that we are going to exercise, not only in formal capacities, but also informal and unofficial ways. And so we return to that word, bleedership. Now, I introduce it like that on purpose, of course. Now, this isn't physical bleeding, although physical bleeding did occur to Jesus. I'm using bleeding and the word blood as a metaphor for self-sacrifice. And so, therefore, this is what bleedership is. It's putting others first, often in a way that is self-sacrificing. That's what it is. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. He could have called down legions at any moment and slaughtered everyone. And gotten out of that situation. But he didn't. Why? Because he's doing it for us. He's putting the interests of others first. He needs to fulfill his heavenly father's will so that we might have peace forever with God. And he shows this in this incredible self-sacrificial love. And this is what the world needs, my friends. Albert Einstein, the great physicist, died in 1955, said this. I love this quote. The significant problems that we face today cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. The significant problems we face today cannot be solved at the same level of thinking that we were at when we created them. The world needs this kind of leadership, putting others first, often in a way that is self-sacrificing, in those unofficial moments of leadership that we are invited to participate in. Part of the reason that stuff's falling apart is because this is not occurring. Not very often, anyway. So I want to highlight three ways that I think we can be these types of unofficial leaders when the opportunities present themselves. And the first is just be aware of those subtle moments for unofficial leadership. And so, you know, they they occur. And I think when you start to look for it, you're going to start to see it. It's like all of a sudden you're with a group of people, peers, friends, family, classmates, work, church, whatever it happens to be. And all of a sudden something happens where some leadership is required. It's It's like this door opens, this silent, invisible door and someone needs to walk through. And sometimes it's not you. And you'll sense that the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you just need to listen and stay back in this moment. But there's other times when you need to seize that moment. Maybe God has put me in this situation to exercise some unofficial leadership. And so you're thinking about it. And the first step is just start to look for them. Two, it's having a love first mentality. So uh, the key concept is leadership. And so think of Jesus on the cross. He endured all of this for us. It's a first mentality. And this, the reason we have to be proactive about this is because it's not natural. What's natural, our sin nature, is to be selfish. It's to argue, I want this and I want you to acknowledge that I'm right. That's the fundamental default of humanity. So having a love first mentality takes a certain amount of, of retraining. And so let's do a little example. Imagine you're in a group of peers and you're talking, and someone brings up so-and-so, who the group hasn't seen in a while, but you know what? They've been acting weird. I wonder what's going on with them. And you can tell where the conversation's going, and it's not a very positive place. And so you realize, wait a second, there's an opportunity for me to insert myself here. And all of a sudden, you change the tone of things. Hey, wait a second, has anyone, has anyone reached out to them recently? I wonder if they're going through something that's really difficult. Hey, I wonder if, I wonder if we should get together and just reach out to them and see if they need some help. Greg Nettle and Jimmy Mulatto um, highlight something how this type of love first mentality isn't something we do for someone when they aren't there, but sometimes we get something, we receive something good, and we want to share it with others, and we're a natural blessing, and that becomes our default. And the example they give is when they were 
sponsoring a child through Compassion International, and they were going down to this impoverished country to meet this young boy for the first time. And they happen to do so on this bus, and there's all these other people around, and this boy has a bunch of his friends around, and they brought, okay, what, what's going to make a good first impression? Well, a bag of candy. And so they bring this bag of candy for this young boy, and they meet him, and they, they have this discussion. They, he, here's some candy. They give him this candy. And kids in impoverished countries do not see candy as often as we do here in North America. And he was so excited, and so were all of his friends. He turns around and starts distributing all this candy out to all his friends. It's like a party instantly. They're all so excited. And the boy turns around to see these two sponsors, and they realize he doesn't have any candy left because he just gave it all away. Was he sad? He was smiling from ear to ear because all of his friends had candy, which they never get to have. Love first. Third, rest regularly. <clears throat> the reason it's important to say this is because, not for everyone, but for a lot of people, if we're running on empty all the time, if we're just going and going and going and going, and if we're giving and giving and giving even, basically what's going to happen is we're not going to be in a position to have a love-first mentality when people come into your life and you can show some unofficial leadership because you're too exhausted Maybe not physically, but mentally. Studies have been done. This is going to be a shocker. Studies have been done, which actually, get this, show that you will actually make better decisions and think more clearly when you're rested. <laughs> There's studies on this. It's crazy. Wait, 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 if I'm rested, I'm actually going to think clearly, live by my priorities, and make better decisions. I'm rested. That's, I, I can't even believe it. Uh, recently, Laura and I had this conversation, but you know, you know, stuff comes up in life and, uh, and kids and everything else. And we, okay, we need to have a, a conversation about something. And, and uh, we realized sometimes we would, we would plan to have that conversation after we tuck the kids in at bed at night. <clears throat> and we realized we can no longer have conversations after that takes place. Uh, because after we tuck in the kids, we are brain dead and so, like, okay, we got to find some other time. Maybe it's Tuesday night, maybe it's whatever, first thing in the morning. But we cannot do it. We cannot make good decisions uh, when we're brain dead. And so I think proactively being about rest is actually not selfish. It's actually loving because you are going to be positioned to make better decisions through the day. All right, my closing word is this. I just want to encourage you to be the unofficial leaders our world needs. And this text like this is so powerful and big, and there's so many things going on in the cross, but I just wanted to highlight something contextually that is going on behind the scenes that is not usually talked about, but yet which tells us about the nature of Jesus' leadership, therefore the kind of leadership we can emulate when we get into situations of unofficial leadership. And this, my friends, is what the world needs. There is no household where this is not needed. There is no country where this is not needed. There is no planet where this is not needed. We can live, as N.T. Wright says, going out and doing our work in the world, confident that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. The prime minister is not. We respect him and pray for him. The president is not. Bill Gates is not. Elon Musk is not. Jeff Bezos is not. Oprah Winfrey is not. Mark Zuckerberg is not. Jesus is Lord. And I believe that he invites his people through passages like this and others to show the world a different way to be and a different way to lead. Remember those words from Einstein. The significant problems we face today cannot be solved at the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. 
And so leadership is putting others first, often in a way that is self-sacrificing. Friends, let us look to the true king who is Jesus. Amen.